Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for all that we've been challenged with tonight in these singing, the songs that Brother Chuck has led us in, the choir, the old-fashioned singers, and just the impact of people being together in the name of Jesus. We pray now that the Spirit of God would speak to every one of our hearts. Teach us the truth of thy word. And Holy Spirit, do your work. There's one person here who is not saved. God grant that he'll come out of his sickness, sorrow, and lostness into Christ's glorious light and liberty tonight. And someone to whom thy spirit has been speaking, and in his heart and mind there's been even the thought of turning back. Lord, help him to just look toward the homeward stretch, get going again for God. May there be victory tonight in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, please. Matthew 24. I really have two messages on my heart tonight. I'll just bring one of them, but I want to give you an outline of the other one because I'd really like to preach both of them. But I have sympathy with you. You'd like to get home before midnight. And so, before you turn, while you're turning to Matthew 24, just slip over and turn to Matthew 25 a minute and look at verse 6. I really would like to speak about the sounds of his coming. Somebody said, I've quit looking for the signs and I'm listening for the sounds. Jesus is coming again. In Matthew 25, 6, and at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. There are ten sounds associated with the coming of Jesus. Number one, in Luke 21, 34, surfeiting and drunkenness. Number two, in 2 Peter 3, 3, the sound of scoffers. We'll be studying that in Sunday school next Sunday morning. Number three, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the shout of the Lord. Number four, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the voice of the archangel. Number five, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the trump of God. Number six, Matthew 25, 6, the cry at midnight. Number seven, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, the voice of vengeance. Number 8, 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11, the voice of transition, seeing that all things, all these things must come to pass. The elements will melt with a fervent heat, and this earth will be dissolved. What manner of man ought you to be? And number 9, Revelation 1, 7, the wail of the lost. When Jesus comes again, those who have heard the gospel never again will have an opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. And what an awful weeping and wailing as the lost are told of their, of their fate. They cry for the rocks and the mountains. They pray, but their prayer is too late. And in Revelation 5, 9, the tenth one, the song of the redeemed. They sing a new song saying, Worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and riches and power and glory and wisdom, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us, our God, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and tribe and nation. And we shall reign on the earth. We shall be kings and priests. What a wonderful truth. But we want to study tonight Matthew 24. Beginning with verse 36, the theme, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Give your attention to verse 36 and following, please. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking 
marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the householder had known in which watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over, over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, <clears throat> and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and point him a portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the most dreadful warnings in the Word of God concerning the true and the false, and the apparent true really being revealed for what they are, fakes and hypocrites. But of that day and hour knoweth no man. But as, it, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. If we want to know what the days of Noah were like, we need to turn to Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6. And if you'll hold your finger in Matthew 24 and turn to Genesis 4, First of all, we see the socio-economic conditions of the day in which Noah lived in Genesis chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She again bore his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. He did the best he could. But the best we can is not good enough for God. I've heard people say, I'm doing the best I can, preacher. Gonna do the best I can. Well, that's commendable, but the best you can isn't anything for the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and, of the, and of, of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Why did Cain kill Abel? Cain killed Abel because of jealousy because he could not stand the righteous life of that righteous man, Abel. Now both of them were workers. Cain was a tiller of the ground, or an agriculturalist. Abel was a shepherd-like man who took care of the herds. 
But both of these men were already aware that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Cain said, it really doesn't make any difference so long as I do the best I can. That old fanatical, old-fashioned preaching about the blood is unnecessary. And so he came bringing to God an offering. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we can't just bring to God any old thing. You know, men are not forgiven of their sins because they come to God and say, God, please forgive me. That doesn't forgive you. That doesn't save you. You're not saved by asking God to forgive you. This is the reason 1 John 1, 9 is not really a salvation verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a verse to believers, to Christians. A man is not forgiven because he asked God to forgive him. He is only forgiven on the basis of making the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, a sin offering for his soul. The only way a man, woman, boy, or girl can have right standing with God is through the blood. And Cain didn't believe it. And Cain came bringing all of his leaves and his vegetation and all that stuff, which was good, but it wasn't good enough. For only the blood maketh an atonement for the soul. And Abel went out and killed an animal and brought a sacrifice that involved the shedding of blood. And God had recognition. God had favor toward Abel because Abel offered unto the Lord a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. The excellent sacrifice was the blood. If there's one person in this room tonight who has never received Christ as Savior, You've never made Jesus' blood shed at Calvary an atonement for your sins. You've never personally come and said, I want Christ in my heart. I want the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross to be my personal Savior. Then, brother, you're not saved no matter how many times you've asked God to forgive you. The man over in the foxholes of Vietnam or Korea or Normandy or the battlefields of the world, hearing the gunfire and seeing the, the burst of the shells and seeing the planes coming with their bombs, may get down in a foxhole and cry out, Oh God, oh God, let me get back home safely. And because God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust alike, God may answer that prayer. I believe God answers sinners' prayers sometimes. Not because God puts himself under obligation to that prayer, but because God is merciful and just, and he hears the heart cry of everybody, whoever he is. But God cannot forgive sin except by the blood. God cannot cleanse from sin except by the blood. Now we're living in an age like the days of Noah. When men refute the blood, when men say, take those bloody songs out of the songbook, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Tear that out. That's bloody. There's power, wonder-working power in the blood. Tear it out. It doesn't sound good to my anemic personality, so I don't want to hear about it. As it was in the days of Noah, 
So shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. That's Cain and Abel. But let's go on. Look at verse 16. And we see something about the economic conditions of the days. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And Enoch was born, unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat uh, Mahujuel, and Mahujuel begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech, and Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of one was Ada, the other Zillah. And Ada bore Jabel. He was a father of such as dwell in tents, and such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of such as handled the harp and the pipe. Jubal, Jubalate, Jubalate. You hear that? That's where it came from. And Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech and his wife, said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man who wounded me and a young man for hunting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And in these few verses, 16 to 24, we see a hint of the early civilizations that were going on before the flood. It was an age of advanced knowledge and an age of advanced civilization. Some of the things that are being discovered little by little by little date back to antiquity, and many of them date back to the time before the flood. For instance, if I ask you when were the Egyptian pyramids built, many of you who have studied have a stock answer. We're not sure, or perhaps in the 34th dynasty, or maybe 3,400 years before Christ. But modern studies are saying those pyramids go back farther than that. And since we've had space travel and men have been orbiting the earth, they have observed that the pyramids in Egypt and the pyramids in Central America and the pyramids in the Himalayan mountains in Southeast Asia seem to all line up. And they seem from the air to have, at least the ones in Southeast Asia, a cone-like, metallic, cone-like pyramid on the top. And this has led to a question. What were the pyramids? Now, the Egyptians indeed buried their kings in them. But was that a late thing? Could it be that those pyramids were constructed before the flood? One of the most amazing discoveries is the discovery of the largest pyramid of them all. And guess where it is? On the floor of the ocean. In the Devil's Triangle, south of Florida. Did any of you read about that in the paper? Some of you did. They say that's the largest pyramid ever discovered. It has to be man-made. It is totally covered by water. It's on the level floor of the ocean right in the middle of the Devil's Triangle, and you know about the Devil's Triangle, planes going over have suddenly disappeared. Ships going across that area have suddenly mysteriously disappeared. Thousands of people have, been, have disappeared in the Devil's Triangle, and they don't know what, 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 what happens. 
Nobody seems to know. They watch on the radar screen and suddenly it disappears. And many air routes route the airwaves and the planes around the Devil's Triangle. And in the, in the bottom of the ocean, under the Devil's Triangle, they have found the largest pyramid ever found, ever discovered. Why, that was not built by man under the sea. That was built by man on dry land. When was it done? Ladies and gentlemen, in the days before the flood, there was an advanced knowledge, advanced civilization. They had all the music that we have now. And probably they ended that age with rock music. That's my opinion. The Bible doesn't say that. And they danced their way into oblivion and hell to the rock beat. I wish we could have Bob Larson up here. Hope we can get him. I'd like for everybody here to hear him tell about the devil's delusion. What I'm saying is these advanced civilizations were like the knowledge explosion today. As a matter of fact, we may be just now recovering some of the lost knowledge of those ancient civilizations. We think we're so sharp, so smart. But that ancient civilization, for instance, how were the pyramids put together? Now, I've read all those stories that tell about how they put inclines up and they did this and they did that and the other. Honey, it takes a pretty naive mind to think that they could build it like that. I believe they had major instruments and they knew how to do it. We couldn't even do it today with all of the equipment we have. We don't know how to build stones like they do. They, we don't know how to sharpen them off and cut them off and don't even put any mortar in between them and they all stick together just like they were made there and permanent, just like they were made by God there. Advanced civilization. God said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. We're living in an advanced age of knowledge. But I want you to notice something else. Turn your Bible to the fifth chapter of Genesis. And we see something about the home and the family picture. Listen to this. In verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called him, his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he'd begotten Seth were 800 years. And he begot sons and daughters. And Adam lived, Adam and the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Listen to this. Adam lived 930 years. Seth lived 912 years. Enoch lived 905 years. Enosh. And then Canaan lived 910 years. And on and on we could go until we come to verse 20. And all the days of Jared were 962 years. And all the days of Enoch were, nine, were 365 years. And look at verse 27. All the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. All that tells us about Methuselah. He, bore, he was born. He begot sons and daughters. And he lived, no, and he died. And you know what that's saying? Life had become a bore. All the record tells us about it. They were born, they had sons and daughters, and they died. That's it. And life had become so active that the folks were bored. And we're living in an age like that today. People are bored because they have lost their purpose for living. The average individual you meet on the streets of Bowling Green doesn't really have any purpose for living. You ask somebody, what are you going to do in life? 
What is your purpose? I don't know. Que sera, sera, just coast down the river on a Sunday afternoon, doing whatever comes naturally, you know. No plans, no goals. And we have a civilization of individuals across the earth, many of whom have no purpose. In some countries, the reason they have no purpose is because they have no food and they're starving. In other countries, the reason they have no purpose is because they have been swallowed up by lust. What happened in some of those countries in Europe 15, 25 years ago is now happening in America. And the fact that there were no standards to live by and sexual promiscuity became the word of the day and folks just lived any old way they wanted to live killed the purpose for life. I have an article here that's interesting. It was just given to me before church tonight. Living together is gaining popularity. The number of unmarried men and women living together has more than doubled since 1970, and the number of divorces has continued to skyrocket, the government reported yesterday. A Census Bureau report on the marital status and living arrangements of Americans showed that as of March 1977, one and a half millions, million unrelated men and women shared households, households compared with 654,000 in 1970. And on and on and on we could go. Well, why have any purpose for living if you can have all the fulfillment that you want outside of marriage? And if there are no such thing as things as standards, if there are no rights and wrongs, play your life away. And that's exactly what was going on in the days that were before the flood. In the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And look at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, the moral conditions of the day. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born unto them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of whom they chose. Now some translations make verse 2 seem to say that angels were intermarrying with earth beings. I do not think that's the plain teaching of the Scripture. Scripture point is that people who were a people of God were intermarrying with people who were not a people of God. Humans marrying humans, but their basic ideals and purposes in life were different. And so they began to have a mixed multitude. Do you recall when Balak wanted Balaam the prophet to curse Israel? And Balaam said, I can't do this. I'm a prophet under orders. I can't do this. And Balak said, no, you must do it. I don't want these children of Israel to pass through my land. And I want to shame them and I want to curse upon them. Balaam said, I can't do that. I'm God's prophet. I can't do it. And finally, after the donkey talked to him, and the donkey was able to see what Balaam couldn't, Balaam said, I can't do that. I won't do it for money and I won't do it for any other thing. And he went back home and Balak sent information that if Balaam would only do it, he'd uh, be a wealthy man, wouldn't have any problems. Now, now, Balaam was a preacher. Preachers are, you know, preachers are human. 
and Balaam was being bribed by the devil. So Balaam said, well, now I can't curse Israel because God's blessings are on Israel. But here's what I can do. I can tell Balak how to destroy Israel. And I won't be cursing him. I'll just let Balak do it. And so Balaam had a private conference with Balak. And you know what he told him? He said, now here, I'll tell you what to do. You throw a big shindig, great big party. You get all your girls to dress up with as little on as they can get. And you go down there and have a big party. And uh, you go up and have them go and give invitations to all the boys of Israel, all those teenagers and all the young men of Israel. And, and have them come to this party and then have a big dance party. And after the dance, be sure to get them drunk. And then let those girls, let those boys do anything with them they want to do. You'll destroy Israel. Balak said, thank you, Balaam. That's exactly what happened. Balak threw a big party. And the daughters of paganism, materialism, secularism, emotionalism, immorality, became available to the men of God. Now listen, when a girl's morals sag, a man's morals fag. Girls, no man will ever go any further than you let him. Just remember that. And so those men came down and their spiritual lives were destroyed. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. That's what's going on in the sixth chapter of Genesis, and that's what's going on today. In the days that were before the flood, look at some of these problems they were facing. In verse 5, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowl of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made him. And Noah, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Make thee an ark. As it was in the days of Noah. As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Listen to this. I have a lot of clippings. I can't read all of them to you. Venereal diseases on the rise in America. An epidemic of gonorrhea and VD venereal diseases. Prostitutes, prostitution attitudes changing. Most of the United States still bans prostitution, but there's some enlightenment coming, and in some areas they recognize that prostitutes make a real contribution to society, and so they're no longer banning it. So-called sin laws seen trying up, tying up police agencies. The sin laws have become so uh, involved that the police are trying to spend so much time uh, tracking down people who are immoral that they don't have time 
to stop people who are speeding. And so they want to do away with the sin laws. That's what this article is all about. So that the cops can go and get those who are civil offenders. And then, abortion. Abortion is a volatile political issue. That's this article. Has nothing to do with morals. Everything to do with politics. And since the Supreme Court said that it's legal for the states to have abortion, abortion is on the upswing. And I have an article that's so sickening, it made me sick. I almost vomited when I read it, but I'll have to tell you a little bit about it. I can't read all of it. A doctor is now on trial because an 18-year-old girl came to him and wanted an abortion. He agreed. He started the abortion process, but somehow he couldn't kill the little baby. And the baby was aborted. He discovered that it was a little bit older than he thought it was, and so when it was born, its heart was still beating. And he called in somebody else to assist him, and he took his hands and began to choke that fetus. And now he's on trial for trying to kill a baby. I won't tell you all the other gory details, but it's sickening. Just when does a little baby become a little baby? When does it leave the state of being a fetus? God said, if you don't want children, start at the other end and don't get together as man and wife. Don't live together in adultery or fornication. But you say, men can't take that saying today. That's the way it was in the days of Noah. They couldn't take it then. They couldn't live like that. And so men were loving men, women were loving women, and men were loving women outside of the, outside of the sanctity of marriage. And there was violence and crime and sin on the rampant. Girls, the highest honor God has called you to is to be a mother. I recognize and I think the Scripture recognizes the truth that some women may have a different call and may be called to cast their lot in an unusual ministry, a ministry to others never having a husband and never having children. And they place themselves in some position of responsibility as a missionary or a servant of mankind in some service area where they can serve God and man. And our hats go off to them in thanksgiving to God. But the highest honor a young teenage girl should look forward to is the home and being a helpmate to her husband. And together, they're bringing into this world a beautiful life. Abortion, sin. And the country is full of it. And Bowling Green is full of it. 
and they've passed laws so that young teenagers can have abortions and their parents never need to know about it. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. I don't have time to look at all these other articles tonight. But just evidences from the daily newspapers that we're living in a state of moral degeneracy, spiritual decline. And Jesus said, when you see that happen, be ready. Verse tw- we're back in Matthew 24, verse 38. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and carrying and, and, and marrying and giving in marriage until the flood, until the day came that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now this age before the flood was an age that is described in eight ways. Number one, it was an age of religious apostasy. Number two, it was an age of great travel. Number three, it was an age of city building. Number four, it was an age of polygamy and sexual permissiveness. Number five, it was an age of agricultural advances. Number six, it was an age of music. Number seven, it was an age of metalwork and metallurgy. And number eight, it was an age of violence and crime. We saw some of that depicted in that film tonight. As it was in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the ark came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. God said, Noah, build an ark. I'm going to bring judgment. I'm sick of this age. I'm sick of the sin. I can't tolerate it anymore. I'm not going to see it anymore. I'm going to hide it from my eyes. I'm going to remove it. Noah, I want you to build an ark. Now, he'd never heard of an ark. Nobody else had. So God had to give him exact directions about what the ark was going to look like, how big it was to be, what size it was to be, and uh, all the compartments, where the window and the doors were and so on. And the perfect picture is drawn in, in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Perfect. Every detail. And so Noah started building. And remember, he had 120 years to build that ark. And he pounded away. He hired a crew. And they built and they pounded and they built and they pounded. And in the meantime, Noah would preach. He would preach righteousness. He would preach repentance. He would say to the young people and to the older people, he would say to moms and dads, repent, have homes that are godly. Put away the, the sin of your lives and come back to God. They'd laugh at him and scoff at him. Imagine preaching 120 years and nobody repenting. Nobody. Nobody. Poor Jeremiah preached to Jerusalem for 40 years and nobody repented. I've often felt sorry for him. Noah preached 120 years and nobody repented. Nobody. And finally, after he had preached and that generation had grown up and they said, that old fuddy-duddy, he's nutty as a fruitcake. Why, he's just done the same old thing, preached the same old thing. He's, cra- he's old-fashioned. He's an old square. Don't know what he's talking about. He's just an old mean man. I don't know why he hammers away at us all the time. Why doesn't he leave us alone? You ever thought that? I wonder if some teens have wondered when their pastor tries to appeal to them to live a godly, pure life. To so set a stage in your life that you can be spiritually pure, morally pure, unblemished, and come to that age and that moment when you stand before the marriage altar and you give to the one who will be your lifetime partner 
a body and a mind that is pure and clean, just like you want from the other. And you said, preacher, you're just fanatical. I don't even like the way you talk. That's the way it was in those days, the days of Noah. Just like that. They didn't like Noah. And they hammered against him and they railed against him. And finally, God said, Noah, that's enough preaching. You can close your Bible now. And I want you to get your children, and get all the animals that I've told you about and go into the ark. And he went into the ark. And the Bible says God closed the door. God closed the door. Seven days they were in that ark. And then the waters began to come up. And you saw in the film tonight, it had never rained until that day. And that rain began to come down. And the fountains of the deep were broken up. And the oceans broke over the continents. And the water came. And it began to bear that ark up. And I think some of those people who had heard Noah preach, when they saw the waters coming and the floods coming, they came and pounded on the door, Noah, Mr. Noah, won't you let us in? Oh, please let us in. Noah, Noah, let us in. I think if Noah could have, he'd open the door and let him in because he had the milk of human kindness in his soul. But God had shut the door. And listen, when God shuts the door, it's too late. Too late. If the Lord should come tonight and those who are saved would be called together to be with the Lord, I can just see some down here on the earth say, oh, oh, please come back. Joe, Mary, Harry, Mom, Dad, come, let me go with you. It's too late, too late, forever too late because God will have closed the door. And anyone who has heard the gospel preached and has said no and rejected the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ can never be saved after that door is closed and they'll go through the dark tribulation period of judgment on this earth and they'll never have another opportunity. There will be two in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. Two women grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, the other left. And then Jesus said something with which I close tonight. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord does come. He's speaking to Christians. He's talking to us, those who have been saved. Watch. Why does he say that? Is it because he's scared we'll be left behind? No. No, the saved are going to be caught up. The lost are going to be left behind. If you're not here, if you're here tonight and you're not saved, that word isn't really to you. What I'm preaching is to you. Repent of sin. Turn quickly to Christ. But if you are saved, the word of Jesus, watch. For you know not what hour your Lord doth come. That is a message to you. What are we to watch? I think God wants us to watch our degree of consecration. Who's first in your life? What are your priorities? Are your friends before Jesus? Who's first in your life? Now, it's a rare individual today who has a spiritual line to heaven in which he puts Christ first. We put everything else first, and we put Christ second. Let me just say a couple of things off the cuff, off the record. God wants 
godly young men, young women, to put him first in their lives. God, the Lord wants to be number one. He can't play second fiddle to anybody. The scripture says, if you love mother or father or brother or sister or houses and lands more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. No man can be my disciple if he does not hate his father and mother and take up his cross and follow me. Do you mean the Lord is telling us to hate people? No, he's saying that the love you have for Jesus needs to be so much higher than the love you have for your dearest friends and your dearest pet plans on the earth that the people down here will think you hate them because you're following Jesus constantly. If they're going to get in harmony with you, they have to follow Jesus because that's where you're going. Now, it's not like that usually. Usually a, a, a girl will, uh, you know, really love God and serve God until she meets some old boy. He comes along and says, uh, uh, honey, let's go to the picture show tonight. Oh, I go to prayer meeting. Always. Oh, you don't need to go to prayer meeting. My land, most kids don't go to prayer meeting. You don't need to go tonight. Go, let's go to the theater. Let's go to somewhere else. And so this girl that loves God starts galloping off with the guy because he's first instead of Jesus. Or some old boy loves God, looks on a girl, and God put that love in his heart and that desire because God made women attractive to men. That's just one of the facts of the Bible, one of the facts of life. God made it like that. And so this guy begins to look at that pretty girl and, and he decides, well, I want to go with her. And uh, here's his loyalty to Christ. And uh, you know, I, I do that all the time. I'm always doing this. Well, I, you know the Lord won't mind if I do, do this one time. And so I go over here and, and, and just little by little by little by little by little, his priorities change. And instead of Christ being first, this girl becomes first in his life. God's, Jesus says, watch, watch your priorities. The same thing is true in adult life. Sometimes children, sometimes jobs, sometimes other things supplant Christ as first. Watch therefore. Secondly, we need to watch our attitudes. It's so easy to be filled with pride. So easy to be filled with self. A person that does not have a repentant attitude, there's something wrong in his life. If somebody can confront you with something that they sense they see in your life, and it doesn't just break you down, whether it's true or false, it doesn't break you down, and it doesn't make you repentant and feel, oh, how have I hurt this person? How have I hurt my Lord? If it swells you up with pride and you get egotistical and you say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I just don't understand you then there's something wrong with your attitude. And the Lord says we need to repent of that kind of attitude. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Remember there are four ways God deals with a sinning Christian. Number one is to hurt his heart. Number two is to send somebody to you. When somebody comes to you and they begin to talk to you about your spiritual life and you're saved, listen to them. Listen to it. It may be a voice from God. Now, it may not be. But listen to it and take it to God. Ask the Lord to give you wisdom and deal patiently and tenderly with that person who's come to you. They may be an angel of God to you. Thirdly, watch. Watch for those who are lost all around us. Do you know it's possible to get so caught up in our Christian love for each other that we forget those on the outside? We forget them. 
No longer interested in them. Not only do we forget them, but we forget to live our spiritual lives sharply. I heard a teenage boy say today, one of the places that he found himself spiritually, not, not morally, not to in open things, but just spiritually backsliding, was in a Christian school. He said, when I went to public school, had to carry my Bible. And during study hall, I read my Bible and prayed. And I was aware that there were forces all around me that would, would dethrone Christ and would try to, to destroy my spiritual testimony. And so I was on guard. But when I got in a Christian environment, I didn't think I was necessary any longer. And so I began to leave off some of those things. That's a serious thing. And sometimes in a Christian movement, like our church, where young people and older people and so on, we're all caught up in the work of the Lord. Sometimes we can get so sure of ourselves that we forget the spiritual sharpness of our testimony. And we leave off the things that really would keep us sharp spiritually. We leave off Bible and prayer and the other things that are important. Watch. Watch. And then, I think the Lord would say, watch your faithfulness. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. It's not how you start, it's how you end the race that's really important. Remember that. Preachers, deacons, Christian workers, Christians. It's not how you start the race, it's how you finish that's really important. It's not how you start the football game, but how you finish it. Not how you start the track match, but how you finish it. Not how you start the basketball game, but how do you finish it. It's not how you start your life, but how do you finish it. Now we have to have a good start in order to assure some kind of a good finish. And you certainly have to be born again or you can never get into the kingdom of God. But there are a lot of born again people who start well and then they fade out. They become fizzles and they become has-beens and used-to-bees. And they're on the garbage heaps of life. They're placed over on the shelf. I don't know how many people I've visited in Bowling Green. They say, well, I, yeah, I used to go to church. I used to do this. I used to be that. Why even? I was even, I visited in my church and... I was a soul winner. I taught my Sunday school class. I did this and that and the other. What are you doing now? Well, I'm doing nothing. Not nothing. I'm not doing anything. What happened? They got their eyes off of Jesus along the way, and Jesus said, watch. Watch and pray, for in an hour when you think not, the Son of Man comes. And in 1 John chapter 2, little children, I write this unto you so that you won't be ashamed before him at his coming. One day Jesus is coming. And we don't want to be ashamed before him when he comes, do we? With our life caught up with surfeiting and drunkenness and revelry and all kinds of things, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. And let's keep looking to him. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is coming again. It may be tonight. I don't know when he's coming. But the greatest motivation to godly living, the greatest motivation to soul winning, the greatest motivation to yielding your heart to Christ immediately is the, the idea, the thought, the motivation, the truth. Jesus is coming again. I don't know when, maybe tonight. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. In a little while, we're going to observe the supper of the Lord. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me till I come. The Lord's Supper, the broken body, 
the shed blood, all of it point back to Calvary and forward to his second coming. In just a moment, we want to sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. As we sing that in a moment, I wonder if there are not some folks here tonight. You've already been saved, but you need to go get deeper with God. You need to say, in the light of the coming of Jesus, I want to take a stand for the Lord. I want to serve him. I want to be what he wants me to be. In the light of the coming of Christ, I want to be more faithful. In the light of his glorious coming, I want to repent of my sins and my wrong attitudes. I want Jesus to have his way. I want him to be first in my life. And if you're here without Jesus, you've never been saved. Won't you come and trust his blood to cleanse you from sin tonight? Our Father, we pray that just now someone would step across the portal of faith, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Others would come saying, I want to renew that covenant vow with God to serve the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please. Just as I am, I'm coming to Jesus. Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. We don't have to come. We don't have to get better first. We come like we are. We come under the banner. Jesus paid it all. Someday I'd like to have a big banner across this church. It says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Then I'd like to ask people who can say, Jesus paid it all, but I haven't given him my all. I want to give it to him to come and stand under that banner. There's some of you may want to do that tonight. Just come and say, I haven't given him my all. <clears throat> I know he's coming again, but I haven't given him my all. I want to give him my all. It may mean you ought to come and say, I've decided to follow Jesus. I won't turn back. I'm going to go on and be baptized. I've trusted Jesus. I'm not ashamed of him. I want to serve him. I want to be open, just as this dear man tonight who said I was sprinkled years ago but I want to be immersed like Jesus was immersed, baptized like he was baptized. Some of you need to come and say that. Others need to come and say, I want this to be my church home, serve the Lord at this place. Still others need to come and say, I've never been saved. I want to trust Christ. Or I trusted Jesus privately, but I want to let everybody know about it now. There are some who need to come and say, God is tugging at my heart. I don't understand all that it means but I want to give him my all, all on the altar. Will you do it? While we begin to sing, step out for the king. God help you to do it.